Good evening. Day eight of the trial of Derek Chauvin. Is the former officer a bad apple? A call to Facebook not to allow Donald Trump back online. Riot cops target peaceful protesters as terrorists in New York City. And a new development in the fight over a beloved park on the Lower East Side. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Wednesday, April 7th, 2021. The trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin entered its eighth day with more testimony from police investigators called to the scene after the killing of George Floyd. Chauvin, in a photo and videos that shocked the globe, is seen holding Floyd's neck under his knee for nine and a half minutes as bystanders pleaded and Floyd gasped for air. Meanwhile, today, a leading police expert from the Los Angeles Police Department, Sergeant Jody Steiger, asserted that Chauvin appeared to inflict pain on Floyd during the arrest by squeezing his fingers and tightening handcuffs. Based on your experience and training, where would the majority of the defendant's body weight be given the position of the left knee, the right knee, and the feet? Uh, that would be on, on, on his knees and uh, pushing down from uh, his knee area on his, from his body. What does this moment in time show? It shows uh, the defendant still on Mr. Floyd and uh, the EMS uh, personnel uh, going over to try to, to survey what was, what was going on. This is shortly before the end of the restraint period that you've defined, is that right? Yes. Were you able to observe the relative position of the defendant using the milestone video from the start of the restraint period to this point. Yes. Did it change? No. All right, and then uh, if you highlight the last photo, and this is from King's body-worn camera, is that right? Yes. This is at the, what you've defined as the end of the restraint period. Yes. And can you please uh, describe to the jury what you see here relative to um, uh, the defendant's leg positioning? Yes, the defendant's left knee, again, is still on Mr. Floyd's neck uh, or neck area, and his right knee is uh, on his back area. And so based on your review of all of the camera footage, the defendant's body position with respect to that particular force did not change during the entire restraint period? Correct. If you observe the defendant on the body-worn camera apply any other type of force, upon George Floyd other than what you saw with respect to his legs and body weight? Uh, yes. Um, towards the beginning of the original restraint, um, Mr. Correction, the defendant, was, used his right hand and he was attempting, appeared to be attempting to use a pain compliance on Mr. Floyd's left hand. Explain to the jury what you mean and if the... Uh, yes. So here you can see the defendant's right hand grasping the fingers of Mr. Floyd's left hand. You use and the term squeezing him. I'm so sorry. It appears to be squeezing him. Then you use that term pain compliance. Can you please describe what that means? Yes. So pain compliance is a technique that officers use to get a subject to comply with their commands. Uh, as they comply, then they are rewarded with the reduction of pain. And how would this positioning uh, induce pain? This can induce pain a couple of ways, either by squeezing of the fingers and uh, 
bringing the knuckles together, which can cause pain, or also uh, basically pulling the wrist into the handcuff, which can cause pain as well. Okay, so is it your testimony then that the drawing of the fingers down and the wrist down towards the handcuffs could induce pain? Yes, especially because the handcuffs were not double locked. Um, double locked meaning that they were not, they could continue to ratchet tighter as uh, the person moved. Were you able to hear instances of what you recognize to be ratcheting during the, your review of the body-worn cameras? Yes. Sergeant Steiger went on to conclude that while three officers were on Floyd, he was not actively resisting when he was in the prone position. The defense struck back, eliciting from Steiger that the LAPD officer had never been a use of force expert in the past, implying a defense argument that bystanders had distracted the officers. A criminal defense lawyer and professor of law from Los Angeles is Marjorie Cohen. She says the problem isn't just about a few bad apples on a Minneapolis police force but the whole barrel. Derek Chauvin isn't just a bad apple. He's a rotten apple, and so are the other officers who aided and abetted him by holding George Floyd's legs and another officer, um, his his uh, body, and actually put his weight on George Floyd's body as well. But these are not just four bad apples that spoil the bunch, and the rest of the bunch is fine. Um, that characterization of the rogue cop which we saw um, after the Rodney King beating, after the killings of Michael Brown, Philando Castile, Alton Sterling, Breonna Taylor, obscures the systemic nature of police violence against black and brown people in the United States. We're talking about systemic racist police violence, and it's important for people to keep in mind as the prosecution shows that um, Chauvin and his uh, his accomplices in crime um, uh, didn't follow the Minneapolis Police Department policy and the use of force experts say that he used they used excessive force, um, that it's not just a question of isolating Derek Chauvin as a bad apple who didn't follow the policy because we see repeatedly the police killings of black people and we don't even see them all not all of them have video footage or body camera footage but uh, it's um, the black people who are unarmed or not attacking police are 3.5 times more likely to be killed by police than white people according to the brookings institution and police kill black people at more than twice the rate of whites even though black people account for less than 13% of the U.S. population. And uh, th they do this openly and notoriously in public, in broad daylight. Um, one of the witnesses, eyewitnesses to George Floyd's torture and murder, said that Derek Chauvin looked comfortable. Her word, her word was comfortable as he was um, there with his knee on George Floyd's neck for nine minutes and 29 seconds. And officers know that they rarely face any semblance of accountability for killing black people. Officers were charged with a crime in only 1% of all killings by police, um, mapping police violence reported in 2020. So, yes, they're bad apples, uh, but that's not the end of the story. We cannot forget that 
racist violence by police in this country against black people, against brown people is systemic. It's a part and parcel of the very system of policing in this country. Today and yesterday, they were trying to break it down and say, well, his hand was here, his knee was there. Where was his knee really? Circle and paragraph on the back. And what do you think of this trial? I think it's being well prosecuted. I don't know what the verdict will be. Chauvin is charged with second degree murder, which requires an intent to kill. And third degree murder, which is a lesser included offense, the jury could find no intent to kill, but he did an eminently dangerous act with a depraved mind without regard for life. Or they might agree on second degree manslaughter, where there's no intent to kill, but culpable negligence, which creates an unnecessary risk, and he consciously took chances causing death. Who knows what a jury will do after trying cases for many, many years as a defense attorney? I never, uh, I never, I learned never to predict what a jury would do. But what the defense is trying to do is to isolate each still frame to to isolate and to avoid the enormity of what happened for those nine minutes and 29 seconds. And the reason that Chauvin was fired and charged initially with third degree murder and second degree manslaughter, later they added second degree murder, was because the whole world saw this. Then we thought it was eight minutes and 46 seconds. Turns out it was nine minutes and 29 seconds of George Floyd being tortured to death. So all it takes is one juror to hang the jury. That's what the defense is looking for, a hung jury to prevent a conviction. And uh, so we'll see. We'll see what happens. That's Marjorie Cohen. She's a criminal defense lawyer and professor of law from Los Angeles. And a report released today by 17 organizations led by the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism demands Facebook and Twitter take immediate action to end what they call their enabling of far-right extremist political leaders, dictators, and authoritarian leaders. Donald Trump has been banned from Twitter, and Facebook is still deciding if they'll allow Trump back on their platform. YouTube has already said Trump will be welcome back again in the near future. The report is titled Democracies Under Threat, How Loopholes for Trump's Social Media Enable the Global Rise of Far-Right Extremism. It goes into detail about the fundamental role social media has played in the rise of far-right and authoritarian politicians, not only in the United States, but Brazil, Hungary, Poland, and other countries where far-right politicians have taken power. The group's co-founder, Wendy Vai, says the problem is more than just Donald Trump. Trump has gotten so much attention, and justifiably so. He abused the platforms with hate speech, misinformation, and incitements to violence. But people tend to think of it as a U.S. issue when, in fact, the exceptions carved out by social media companies like Facebook and Twitter and YouTube that allow political leaders to be exempt from their hate speech and other content policies, it has emboldened world leaders across the globe and by that i mean it's the far-right authoritarian leaders who are taking advantage of this because political leaders who are pushing for inclusive democracies don't need exceptions to hate speech and content policies right they are not saying things that's not vitriolic to build their supporter base when the companies codified it and said we're going to let Trump say whatever he wants to say. 
it emboldened leaders across the globe. Examples are Bolsonaro in Brazil, Modi in India, Orban in Hungary. I thought that Facebook and Twitter had penalized Donald Trump and had kicked him off their platforms. That's what they're saying. They're calling it cancel culture. I wouldn't say that that is cancel culture. All of these companies have specific policies about what can and can't be said on their platforms. And it applies to you and me and applies to the vast majority of its users. But they specifically make exceptions for politicians. Twitter has banned Trump. But Facebook is awaiting its decision from its self-appointed oversight board to see if Trump will get back on. YouTube says that he will get back on when they decide that the risk is manageable. I don't know how they're going to decide that. If they couldn't see the risk that was coming for a year before we ever had the insurrection, then I don't know how they're going to determine when it's safe to allow somebody back on to their platform. Far-right and authoritarian leaders are learning the tactics. A lot of them have used Trump as a playbook. What's at the heart of what these leaders do? Uh, you say something about, uh, you said vitriolic rhetoric, but it's, it's demonizing people usually, right? It is, exactly. Far-right leaders cannot build their supporter base without demonizing communities, whether it be Muslims, the LGBT community, Roma, black Americans. They have to demonize a community and give their supporters a scapegoat. If they're allowed to do this, it only perpetuates that hateful culture, which ends up supporting the bigoted policies they ultimately want to implement, for example, on immigration. Facebook and Google and Twitter and these companies often fall over themselves to try and describe themselves as good corporate citizens as progressives, as representing freedom of speech and uh, openness and transparency. What happened? They do represent themselves that way, and I think that many of them believe that. Unfortunately, the reality is not the same thing as believing. What do you want to do about this? There's regulations on the table in the EU, and, in the, and of course here in the U.S. it's being discussed. I don't know to what extent that any of those measures would be eventually legislated and then passed. But in the meanwhile, these companies, if they would just follow their rules, if they would apply their rules equitably and across the board, it would take care of a lot of this. If they would stop distinguishing between who should have a louder voice, everybody should have to follow the same rules. And you can have disagreements about policies. You can express opinions. You can have dissent without it resorting to vitriolic demonizing language that ultimately threatens democracies. It's kind of life and death. I hate to be so serious about it, but it's, it is kind of life and death. People will believe, especially if you scare them, people will believe anything. Wendy Vi is co-founder of the Global Project Against Hate and Extremism. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. And an article on the website of The Intercept says, as New Yorkers poured into the city's streets last summer following the police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, they were met with the very police violence they had come to protest. The article by contributor John Bolger says the Strategic Response Group, the SRG of the New York Police Department, formed after the Occupy Wall Street protests, is a militarized police force meant to treat peaceful protesters 
as terrorists. The SRG is kind of like this new like jack-of-all-trades unit that de Blasio created early in his tenure that kind of it combines counterterrorism with protest response, and it even mixes in some uh, like local anti-crime uh, initiatives. It's a unit which is most famous for its appearances at protests. Stop. And, you know, you probably have seen them with their M4 assault rifles hanging out at subway stations and things as part of their counter-terror work. They look like short little mini-machine guns. They're called M4 semi-automatic rifles. It's a similar model that the Army uses. Why do they use right. those? They typically use those as part of their counterterrorism work. They do what's called a high-visibility static deployment. That's when you see them around the city just standing around holding, holding the rifles. But at the protests, that's when you'll usually see them with their um, riot armor and their uh, bicycles and their batons and all that riot equipment that we saw last summer used against the protesters. Why do they need this uh, SRG? Why, what's wrong with just using regular cops to enforce the law if they have to do that? It was kind of the brainchild, an early idea of Mayor de Blasio's first police commissioner, Bill Bratton. I think they were trying to reorganize their protest response a little bit after the controversies that Occupy Wall Street. It's a million-dollar question. Why do we need the SRG at protest? Some people argue that we don't. Because I was at the final event when they pushed people out of Occupy Wall Street. I was there that all that night. They just came, had a huge number of police who didn't seem to have any particular training. They called from everywhere, and they just had them in a crush of crowd, just push everybody out. But with SRG, when they come in, it's much more tactical. It's a much more methodical approach. If you look at the documents, they have this catalog of these tactical formations that they use. When these tactics are executed, you know, it seems really uh, smooth on the paper, the way they describe these tactics, almost like graceful walls kind of thing. But, you know, when this actually happens, people fall over on the ground, people get beaten up, people get arrested. No two protests are the same. What are some of these tactics? One of the most aggressive tactics is something they call the uh, mobile fence line. That's when the SRG bike officers, they lift their bikes, hold them across their chest, form a tight line, tire to tire, and then, you know, advance on the crowd, you know, put, you know shoving and swinging their bikes on the, uh, you know, the protesters. And when this happens, it's extremely chaotic. People get knocked over, and typically in my experience, what I've seen, you know, people, when you get smacked with a bike in the chest unexpectedly, you tend to fall on the ground, you fall on the ground, police arrest you. And kettling, surrounding people in order to arrest everybody? The police don't use that term kettling, they call it encirclement. The documents regarding the encirclement techniques, they state that when encirclement is being executed, it's because they want to clear ground or they've targeted an individual or a group for arrest. So the encirclement is kind of like a preparatory formation for when, you know, arrests or mass arrests are executed. Even before any action, before people have kicked off a march or left the sidewalk? That does happen. Like we saw last summer, the SRG's response was predictable for its violence, but unpredictable for just how widespread it was and, you know, seemingly, you know, unwarranted preemptive at the tactics. Do you think that's planned? Inherently, it must be planned because they've created this group and prepared it in such a way. If they were better suited for protest in a nonviolent response fashion, these tactics wouldn't be conflated with riot response or, you know, violence. Based on Occupy Wall Street, which was uh, supremely nonviolent, it's moving fast to get people out of Zuccotti Park before they can build the tents and get established, get them out fast. They couldn't do that last time. Yeah.
How did you find this out? How did you get this out of the... Uh, I know the NYPD is pretty secretive, aren't they? The NYPD is, uh, is pretty secretive, but these were public records that we got through government channels. Public records requests. I see. And um, what was the gist of what you got out of this? What did you think about the NYPD's approach to protests coming? Because we don't know if they might acquit Derek Chauvin. For the upcoming protests in a month or two, if they happen, I'm expecting a practically identical response to last year. Back in the 60s, they called it the, the task force. Right. When the SRG was created, it actually replaced some of that task force infrastructure. Usually every patrol borough used to have its own task force that would respond to civil disorders and events on an as-needed basis. One of the major reorganizations of SRG was that these borough task forces are no longer directly involved in the protest response. It's kind of been taken over by SRG. And that's John Bolger. He's the author of NYPD Goon Squad Manual Teaches Officers to Violate Protesters' Rights. It's on theintercept.com. And the battle over the Eastside Coastal Resiliency Project is heating up. It's a $1.4 billion project to raise East River Park along the East River by nine feet to prevent future flooding from storm surges, as happened in 2012 with Superstorm Sandy. But residents say it's really a classic bait and switch by the city, with the community plan for the project suddenly overturned and replaced by a city plan that closes the park for five years and rips up more than a thousand trees, disrupting sports and other programs used by tens of thousands of residents in the mostly poor neighborhood. After a loss in court, construction is supposed to begin this spring. But yesterday, a group of residents opposed to the plan filed an appeal. They say it's an illegal alienation, which means the park is being taken away from the neighborhood against state law, which prevents parks from being just summarily removed from a neighborhood by a city or any other entity. Another development was the mystery of the value engineering report, the document the city said led to their decision to reject the community plan after being turned up by a freedom of information law request. Unfortunately, the report was filled with redactions. Some of those redactions were revealed recently, almost entirely having to do with the topic and cost of park alienation. City Council member Carlina Rivera addressed the issue earlier on about the Blacked Out report in a video on Twitter. Value engineering is an industry term that usually reflects a period of project development where the larger working group evaluates the feasibility of different scenarios. So a result of this process is the final design. There's no additional report. And Rivera in a tweet today announced that the city had released the partially unredacted report, said that the city's Department of Design and Construction agreed to release the additional information as a result of her advocacy and the Eastside Resiliency Community Advisory Group. The group of people who are suing the city immediately shot back saying that it was their demands that had led to the release of the documents. And it's the continuing fight between community organizations and their city council person, something that's uh, all too typical in East Side politics. And at this hour, the Sunshine Movement is gathering in Brooklyn at Grand Army Plaza to march on the home of Senator Chuck Schumer. They're asking for his signature on a good jobs for all pledge. Anil Singh is a high school student and spokesperson for the Sunrise Movement. It's our good jobs for all campaign. And we want members of Congress to sign this good jobs for all pledge that they will commit to pushing for 
$10 trillion over the next 10 years in investment in our communities to fight climate change and guarantee a good job for all who want it. So here in New York City, we're going to Senator Schumer's residence and we're urging him both as our senator and as the majority leader in the Senate to sign this pledge and really fight for it and fight for the future that's going to both combat climate change and create good jobs in the process. Who's signed it so far? There's a few members of Congress that have already signed it. Representative Presley and Representative Bowman. In the Senate, you have uh, Senator Sanders and Markey. And there's a handful of others. We're hoping to get a lot more folks on board. And also Representative Espayat um, from New York as well. So quite a few um, representatives in the New York area. But Senator Schumer has not yet signed on to this pledge. Are you going with a copy of the pledge to his home? Yeah, we are. We're bringing a copy. Um, we don't expecting to sign it right there and then, but we do expect to make a commitment in the coming days, and we're going to continue to both do actions and also both the Senator Schumer and other members of Congress to really continue to push them over the next few months. What is the Sunrise Movement? The Sunrise Movement is a group of young folks like myself, high school and college and other young people, and the purpose of it is to break that narrative that climate change and jobs or climate change and the economy are opposed to each other. So what we believe is that we can't solve our economic problems without solving climate change and vice versa. And we know that climate change is going to affect us the most because we're the ones who are going to have to live with the world that's left. And we know that we have a limited amount of time. What we do is do lots of organizing around the issue of climate change and really pushing candidates and elected officials to champion economic and climate justice and racial justice all in one. And where will you be meeting tonight? We'll be meeting at Grand Army Plaza at 5 p.m. And from there, we'll be marching. It's not too far. It's about a block right to Senator Schumer's place. So if folks want to come 5 p.m. Grand Army Plaza, we'd love to have you there. Anil Singh is a spokesperson for the Sunrise Movement. The Sunrise Movement is gathering in Brooklyn at Grand Army Plaza to march on the home of Senator Chuck Schumer, asking for his signature on a Good Jobs for All pledge. And that's some of the news for Wednesday, April 7th, 2021. The news produced with Linda Perry, our engineers, Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo for the WBAI News. Thanks for listening.